Welcome to Future Foodcast. We're a community of industry experts, food technologists, and food enthusiasts talking all about the future of food. Future Foodcast is sponsored by Farm to Plate, the brainchild of Paramount Software Solutions. Farm to Plate is a software company committed to creating tomorrow's food business ecosystem today. I'm Pam Linemiller, your host, and I am excited to welcome Brian Hoffmeyer with us. He is the Vice President of Education and Government Sales with JTM Foods. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, yeah. Pam. So glad to have you. And I hope I said all that introduction correctly, Brian. You have a long title and a short company name. Exactly, right? So yes. yeah, but no, not, not a problem at all. All perfect. Yeah. Why don't you explain to us a little bit about what you do there at your company for people that might not know, because you're everywhere, not necessarily know your company name. Uh, we always tell everybody products every day all across America just doesn't have a JTM brand name on it when they see it in a rest school or a college or university. University. We make a variety of different styles of products. What we specialize in is what we call kettle cooked items, which are boilable, steamable pouches of finished entree products, anywhere from macaroni and cheese to various types of ethnic sauces, to taco fillings, to chilies, to almost anything you could think of in the entree world. We do a lot of that. We do it under our own brand name, but we also do it under a lot of other people's brand names for them, restaurant chains and distributors and everything across America. So yeah. So again, uh, we ship product to all 50 states. And so uh, and, and we're in retail stores all over the country as well. We always say we're we're kind of, it, it, it's quiet. We have a, the JTM, but people are like, I have no idea who that is. But you go, what, did you eat beer, cheese, and pretzels? I made that. Or did you That's eat right. chili? I made that, right? So, uh, but what I do for our company yep. uh, today, because uh, I've been involved in every part of our business throughout the years, but what I do today is run what we call our non-commercial part of our business, which, which in layman's terms would be uh, K-12, school lunch. Uh, preschool, college, university, and any kind of governmental business with the federal government that my company does, which we do a lot of. Um, so I'm the non-commercial person, uh, as opposed to the commercial person, which would be selling Buffalo Wild Wings or Fridays or, you know, Cisco. Right. So some of those um, that's, that's what we do yeah so th some of the brand names that use your products in their kitchen but that's what we were talking about we don't always know the name of the company because it's a branded product for the the your client uses your source um and and you ship everywhere you're such a large company and i i'm just excited to have you on our podcast because of your perspective brian because you bring years of experience in this segment of the of the commercial world with food and yeah. it's really different you talked about k through 12 kindergarten through 12th grade here in the united states we do have worldwide listeners who have different names mm -hmm. for some of those uh, grades and also the college or university mm -hmm. students so you you see them from the beginning to the end of their education Correct. experience essentially exactly. and that's a really different market especially here in the united states can you explain you have different parameters you have to live Correct. under regulations. Explain to our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, any, any food business that, that is involved with government funding, uh, like K-12 is, most people don't know that preschool food service is involved with government funding. Uh, college, university, not nearly as much. They have government funding, but not for their food programs. So where where I live most of my time is in that K-12 school lunch business. And there are very, very, very stringent rules that come attached to that federal funding 
and state funding that that schools get. Many people don't know that there's you can debate what counts as a school, whether you want to call it charter school or not. But about there's about 15,000 school districts in the United States, for instance. And uh, of those 15,000 school districts, all of them are receiving federal funding in one shape or, or another. So um, when you we always say when you get the government funding, you also have to abide by the rules of said government. So um, in many over the past number of years, because I've been with JTM 34 years and of the 34 years, 30 of it really has been involved in this this part of our business. We've seen the fat, sat fat, sodium all of those numbers, requirements of reducing those have gone down throughout the years. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, some of the requirements are relatively close to the dietary requirements of a heart patient, by the way, right? So um, there's actually new sodium reduction rules coming out on top of sodium reduction rules they already did, where they're going to move a whole a whole lunch, for instance, for a K through five, because, of course, they break everything down into three categories. Mm-hmm. K through five, the lunch limit for sodium is going to be 935 total milligrams of sodium wow. for a K through five student. Correct. Now you go 935. Well, you go the milk's 110. They're going to have an entree. It's going to be about 400, give or take a bit, maybe a little more. The U.S. the, the federal government requires whole grain rich products. And the current rule is 50-50. 50% of the items can be whole grain rich, and 50% of the items are what we could traditional, you know, uh, enriched pasta, um, you know, traditional white bread, kind of that kind of stuff. They have new rules coming out where they're going to require 80% of everything that is served in a school across the United States to be whole grain rich, and only 20% of it can be your traditional enriched type semolina product. The definition, by the way, of whole grain rich is 51% whole wheat, and then it can be 49% of of enriched, right? So it's not whole wheat 100%. And and by the way, there was no such thing until the Healthy Hunger Kids Act of 2010 came out uh, under the Obama administration. Uh, There was no such word as whole grain rich. They literally made it up, not made it up, but they they created the word, uh, and the word meant 51%, 49% whole wheat to enriched because uh, they've they've been trying to increase the whole whole grains into the diet of your K through 12 kids, uh, introduce them into those items. So as they move through uh, the cycles, right, they graduate from school and they move on to college or they move on to business and industry or, you know, they they work at the Ford plant or whatever. They have been introduced to whole grain items, whereas prior to that, there was very little whole grain that was consumed by a kid. Now, their parents were eating wheat bread and everything, but that was not really the choice of of a kid on their peanut butter and jelly sandwich or anything. So, Brian, I don't know. I beg to differ with you a little bit. I think that the parents need some training in the whole grain products. You might be feeding them really, really well at school and they go home and eat junk. So I think there's another dynamic at play here where some of us at home need to implement some of these strategies. I love it that the government uh, creates it, defines it, and then you have to live by it. You you have to provide that. So what are some of the other areas? Because JTM Foods, you're really on the cutting edge of trying to stay ahead of 
the trends that are coming, not knowing what all of those are going to be based on what the political climate is moving forward. So how do you how do you do that? My, my part, a big part of my job is to figure out what my customer is going to need before my customer knows they need it. Uh, because if I wait till they know they need it, then you're looking at two to three years R&D time to get a product through the whole process. Um, uh, some of the big, biggest problems with new products uh, that are reduced sodium or whole grain rich or reduced fat is it takes new ingredients. Uh, or special technology that you have to build into your production facilities mm-hmm. in order to do that. And uh, I have a, a good example. We cook, drain, and rinse all of the beef and pork that we do that go into our entree items for schools. Uh, so we're able to lower the fat level down by about 50%. So I can lower, uh, I can do a beef taco filling that I can get down to the level of a turkey or a chicken taco filling. And we do that by draining, cooking, draining, and rinsing the meat. Uh, Much like when somebody's at home, they're cooking their ground beef in their skillet or however they're cooking it. They put it onto a paper towel or put it into a colander. They run hot water over it. And the key is hot water, not cold water. Uh, They run hot water over it to rinse all that fat out and away from, you know, out of the product, then you put the product back in and finish the cooking process. And again, all I do is do that same process, but I do it about a million pounds every 64 hours. So, you know, so it's just, I just do it on a bigger scale, but we, that technology actually came from the fact that the government a number of years ago had rules and regulations uh, when they were reducing fat and sat fat. And if I'm in the beef or pork business, which I was, mm-hmm. um, I had to figure out a way to reduce the fat. Otherwise, my items would no longer qualify as often to be on a menu. So our goal is to make items that are nutritional, nutritionally sound for the requirements in the program, but to make items that kids run to the lunchroom to go eat. So, th- and those are two very difficult things to do. And when you have to do both of them, make an item where a kid goes, wow, this is really fantastic. I love it. And also make an item that the dietitian goes, wow, this is really a fantastic product. I love the specifications of it. This was going to work really good on my program. Are your kids going to like it? Maybe, I don't know. Um, So we have been very successful at stealth. We call it stealth health, uh, which is really what it is. Um, parents, administrators, RD, food service directors, they all love all the nutritional information and all that stuff. A kid just wants to have a really good lunch. They just want to go to lunch with their friends and eat lunch and like what they're eating. I mean, it's pretty base. It's pretty simple, but it takes, I mean, I have, we, we, JTM, we have 660 employees and I have 660 employees that work every single day to try to make that happen, make everybody to be happy to make products that people want to buy, want to eat, and meet specifications. The the other part of the business in the food service part of the world, um, it's more about, I want a great item. I want to satisfy my customer. I want them to come back every, I mean, the whole goal in the restaurant business or any food business is repeat. You want repeat customers. If you serve people items they do not like, 
they vote with their feet and they do not participate in your particular whatever you're doing location, restaurant, you name it, kiosk, Bardasia, whatever. So, you know, that's kind of issue, but it's not as difficult in the commercial world because you don't have governmental rules on whole grain, fat, sodium, sugar. Sugar, by the way, is the other big thing that, that is, that is also coming, uh, not coming. It's here. We've also mm-hmm. done a lot of, so, uh, a lot besides sodium reduction. We've done a tremendous amount of sugar reduction in our products. Well, can I pause you right there? I'm trying to contain myself while you're describing all this, because for our listenership and our viewership on YouTube, any parent will know that those two goals that you're trying to meet, the nutritional requirements that you're given, as far as the, the stealth health, I love that terminology, stealth health. Any parent is really trying to do that same thing, have something that's healthy for their child. But the other side is they have to want to eat it. Like your description of them running to the lunchroom. Mm -hmm. Yes. Most parents would say, good luck with that, Brian, because Mm -hmm. that's really, that's really the hard part. Right. And when you talk about the rinse and drain piece of it Mm -hmm. or drain and rinse, sorry, Mm -hmm. cook, drain and rinse. Yeah. Right. I've done the draining part at home, but I have never done the rinsing part at home. And I think I might start. That's a great health tip. I mean, we don't have to be a heart patient, but like your example, but that is an easy way for any of us normal people to uh, that are out of K through 12 or not in college to maybe uh, do one small thing to decrease the amount of fat and saturated fat that we're consuming in our diet, but we can still enjoy some of the products that we traditionally enjoy. Your example of the taco meat for for beef. Uh, I've did some Turkey. I like to combine them sometimes, but sometimes I don't have everything on hand. I can, I can um, do the rinsing piece Mm -hmm. of your process and achieve that great health. Thanks for that tip. Now, all right. So we got into the, you're working on the sodium. We've got the fat going and now the sugar, which Mm -hmm. yes, that is a big trend really Mm -hmm. uh, in the general market, as well as I know your regulations, how do you affect change in that area? I mean, Uh, you just have to make products that taste good. Correct. There, the interesting thing is, especially in, 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 uh, actually, I'm going to use ethnic or ethnic sauces for an example. I make a, a general so's or sweet and sour, the, those kind of Asian type sauces, right? Which, which are generally mixed with either breaded chicken or, uh, unbreaded chicken strips, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting, this is actually amazing stuff when you, you look, you have your R and D people. And I said, look, I need to reduce the sugar in these. And they said, okay. Not a problem. And um, years ago, we used to make it with a year. I'm talking years ago, like 20 years ago. Okay. We made it with sugar and with corn syrup, right? Because, again, corn syrup, right? But but back to another thing I had years ago, I wanted corn syrup out of every single product I manufactured. Well, so we did that. And I said, well, I need to reduce the sugar in my Asian sauces. And my R&D team said, well, OK, that's fine. We'll 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 show you one that has 40 percent less sugar in it. OK, that's great. Um, 40 is a big number. 40 percent. 40 percent is a huge number. Right. And I'm like, oh, yes. OK. So they show it and we're eating it in the in, the, in our R&D lab. And I go. I'm looking at my um, director of marketing who works for me, and I'm looking at my director of education sales who works for me, and I'm looking at my culinary team, and we're all eating it, looking at each other going, D, 
did you mix these up? Because these taste the same. They're like, oh, yeah, don't worry. Um, back when we took the corn syrup solids out, we had to make up the weight in the formula. So we just put more sugar in it. We didn't need to put sugar in it. Well, it was just easy on the transition. And you weren't asking to lower the sugar content. You were just asking to take corn syrup out. So I literally lowered by 40% by taking sugar out of a product because your tongue can only taste so much sweet, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, your tongue can taste so much salt, so much sweet. So there, you know, again, my, my R&D guys are all food technologists and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, well, in layman terms, you can make something super sweet or you can make something kind of sweet. And you'll get to the point where you can't even taste the difference between the two because your tongue can't taste it. So oh. so we can take the 40 percent out. And you're not going to notice the difference. And I said, well, if we can take 40 percent out, can can we take 50 percent out? So we did. That's what we ended up doing. We ended up taking 50 percent out of it. Wow. Um, and, and it was just the interesting thing is product gets formulated or manufactured. Right. When you get formulas and things that get designed recipes. And uh, if you don't, we've learned if you don't ask all the right questions, you won't get all the right answers. And, and that's just a good example of a strange thing that we looked at each other and went, why didn't we just do that from the beginning? Well, that's not what you asked for. So right. I've learned to be very specific with what I ask for. And when I do want something changed or reduced, I will always bring up, hey, guys and gals, what else can I do that wouldn't affect the, the the flavor profile, the, the 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 umami of the product, the yumminess of the product, yes. but I but I want to pull this stuff out as much as I can. Uh, we pulled caramel color out of every almost everything that I do. I, I've been yet due to COVID. Yeah, we're going to use the COVID supply chain excuse, but due to COVID, we have not been able to source the quantity of. Because I use I use soy, I also use pea protein, I also do just all meat, allergen free items, mm -hmm. which have no allergens. So the the supply of non caramel color added soy protein concentrate that is available on the market is not enough to support the need of the market. Mm -hmm. um, because you know, anyway, so. So I would say about 95% of everything in my in my line of products that I sell are all caramel color free as well now. We've actually substituted of all things black cocoa powder, for instance. Black cocoa powder uh can substitute for caramel color and it's a natural product uh which which does pretty much close to what caramel color does without the issues that, you know, people have with caramel color. Um I even use citra I use citrus fiber, by the way, which is when you think of citrus, when you squeeze an orange, yeah. right? All that fibery that's material, yeah. right? That's left that had that held all the juice in. Uh, that product is then taken and dried and ground into a powder. And then you can add that item to a product, which will help hold moisture in a product, mm -hmm. but have a natural ingredient in it, right? As opposed to using soy in that product, which holds moisture. Because you have to remember, I'm since I am in the K-12 business, I have, I sell to customers that feed, that have to feed, let's say 500 kids every 30 minutes. And they have four lunch periods. So they have to feed 2,000 people in a matter of, let's just say two hours. Well, you can't make 2,000 hamburgers, for instance. You can't make 2,000 hamburgers on the spot, 
You can't do it like McDonald's does, right? I mean, so they have to make items, you know, an hour, two hours ahead, and they put them in a heated, what they call them, a heated pass-through or, a, you know, a holding, a holding oven. So we have to be able to make items that can also maintain their moisture so the customer, when they do get a cheeseburger or they get taco meat or whatever, are very pleasantly, are very happy with that finished good that they're getting. Because, again, at the end of the day, if you've ever eaten a dry cheeseburger, it's not very pleasurable. It's not but, as good. Yeah. So, you know. Well, and anyway. another thing that you brought up, really, there's a, a term out there these days, the upcycling term, which is mm-hmm. using leftover, what, what would normally in the past been thrown away. Like you're talking about, you squeeze the orange and you have mm-hmm. that fiber in there and you're upcycling that Correct. product to be able to use it for something else. And not only that, it adds another natural element. You're not having to artificially infused moisture you've got that fibrous material that holds it that'd be a much better cheeseburger than the other one Uh, you know the old dried out one that we can all remember having I, i like your idea a lot better with the the fibrous material and brian i really like that you are admitting that you don't know what you don't know your food technologists and food scientists that's their expertise. So you've learned how to communicate with them in a way that says, here's the end product that I need or the end result that I need. But like, don't be restricted by what I'm asking for. Correct. What else? Yeah. What else can you think of that we might be able to do to improve this product, but also give us the same great taste that we have? I, I think that's a great point for all of us too. My, you don't know what you my, don't know. Yeah, my job is to be the ringmaster of the circus, right? <laughs> and, you know, I have to combine R&D, sales, marketing, and culinary all together and get all of those those cats, which all go different directions because they all they all come they come to the event. They come to the meeting. They come to the the project from completely different places. My R&D team is like, hey, you know, I would really like to be able to promote that we had at least this much of a, of a I mean, there's a rule, for instance, about um, reductions. And I think if you claim a reduction of certain thing, you gotta, it's got to be at least 20%. So, you know, I got my labeling and marketing people going, hey, you know, we got to get at least 20% because we can make this claim. And you've got the other R&D people coming and go, well, do not want to introduce allergens, by the way, in the production of yes. food. Allergens used to be treated completely different when I got into this business 34 years ago, mm-hmm. which which means that they weren't as, I would say, as controlled as they are today. Allergens, I mean, when we're scheduling production of products, a run of things, we have to make sure that if I'm going to run allergen-free meaning no allergens whatsoever, my whole production days have to start with that, right? I can't introduce any, and you sort of layer build your production schedules and you're introducing the allergens kind of one at a time as you move through the process. And you're, but you're also making sure you're exiting the allergen free product and isolating it off to where it needs to go in our freezers uh, as it's, you know, as it's going to freeze. So then you maybe would introduce uh, a dairy allergen into it. And then you need a product that uses dairy and possibly uh, pasta, right? Wheat. And then you're going to enter. So it's, it's very difficult to process uh, certain things like a, uh, I'll give you an example, a very difficult product to manufacture, unless you're going to make a whole bunch of it 
is a meat-free, I make a three-bean chili. Fabulous product. It's a vegetarian, vegan product. Phenomenal. Great product. But you always run vegetarian, meat-free stuff first, and then you generally are running things with beans last, oh. right? Because you don't want the beans to get involved in something else. So, because you're treating the, you know, because you also have to make sure that the ingredients on a label, you're, if there's not beans in a product, you can't put beans in something um, or have any residue of beans. Yeah. There's kind of a continuum there as you're producing, I see. As you're building, right? So it's kind of your stack and your build. So making that type of product, unless you're making a ton of it, uh, is, is difficult, is, is difficult to make. Now we now, sell a tremendous amount of the product so it doesn't really matter anymore but early on yes i was i was the subject of many production meetings where they were i'm sure throwing darts at my face uh because they had to figure out how to run five thousand pounds of something in a in a in a million pound production schedule right right well you could just have extra pictures printed for them to put on the bulletin board there in the production area i promise you there's a lot of my there's a lot of my picture with bulletin boards around here after 30 years right but again like i said at the end of the day it's all it's all about making great food for kids i mean i always i'm hearing uh, i'm hearing the care that you take clearly going through, you know, you, the thread that you're speaking about, every everything you do, you're keeping that end result in mind. But you brought up the elephant in the room. So I'm going to continue with that, the COVID yeah. supply chain issue, which yeah. really challenged a lot of food manufacturers and suppliers like yourself. And I would love to know, you know, how you overcame some of those challenges. You deal in volumes that a lot of other people do not have to deal with. And how did you approach that? Well, first of all, you were shut down. Uh, school Correct. was shut down for quite a while. Just take Correct. us through some of the challenges you had and, and how you worked through some. Well, uh, like I always tell everybody, imagine a world and whatever you do for a living that they say you're in the food business, but you can't sell food to anybody but grocery stores. Why? What? And, and again, my company is very diversified. We're in every segment. Right. Um, but the smallest segment that we do is our retail segment. But that was the one segment that we had to immediately gear up and and start, you know, shipping product because items that sold kind of OK. I mean, you know, all of a sudden when everybody, you know, when everybody quits going to a restaurant. And they all have to go eat at home. And a lot of people, by the way, found out they don't like their own cooking. Uh, Dirty little secret. uh, Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) So, um, yeah, they don't like what they're cooking. Uh, So they complain less at restaurants. Um, But um, the other thing that ended up happening was that um, the federal government launched a, a program called the Farmer Family Food Box Program because there were so many people that were in transition. Um, They had been laid off, but they hadn't started getting any benefits yet. Right. So, I mean, it's the first time in a very long time that you had people with, you know, great jobs, great incomes, never have been affected by anything like this in their life. All of a sudden had to wake up to the factor that the today we're going to make food and mom and dad aren't going to eat because we're going to make sure our kids get fed. It's just amazing, especially in the United States, especially in the richest 
country in the world when it comes to food and everything else. Um, So the government launched the Farmer Family Food Box Program, which, you know, good, bad or indifferent, depending on, you know, what people's opinion on it. It would actually turned out to be phenomenal, a really good thing. There were some bad players that took advantage of a pro of the program, and I hope they prosecute them to the furthest extent of the law. Um, But Again, people could go to a food bank or go to one of, one of the uh, events that uh, that I had pictures of for one of the people that I made product for that put these kits together was at uh, the Houston, the football stadium in Houston. Yeah. They had cars lined up for miles to get a box of food. And what JTM did in that is we made two one and two pound and three pound bags of taco filling chili, sloppy joe, uh, and some other things that went into all of these kits all over the United States where they were putting, you know, tortillas or fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables and and things of that nature. So we did that. And um, that is one of the things that, you know, we always say saved us, but that's what saved us because we ended up doing millions and millions of dollars worth of pounds of product. And I had in my freezer, millions of pounds of beef and pork and chicken. And my right. suppliers had millions of pounds of beef and pork and chicken. And I mean, every yeah. it really helped in the, at least the food business to help get that snake bulge that was in every warehouse in America out into the system and out to people. Um, that was the hardest thing early on, because we had a lot of meetings with USDA and we belong to a group called ACTA, the American Commodity Distribution Association. And they're kind of the conduit between, they're the organization that is in between the federal government and in, in, in us and in industry, as well as what they call the recipient agencies, the food banks, the schools, mm-hmm. those people. Yeah. And all of us were kind of working the same angle on, we all got food. We see starving, we see people needing yeah. food. How do we get the food from point A to point B to point C to point D and make it work? It worked really, really, really well. But anyway, so we're doing that. And then for school lunch, what we did is the other thing I was going to tell you is they they instituted this thing called non-congregate feeding in, in layman's terms means the kids don't have to eat in a cafeteria. The kids could eat. In a playground. The parents could come get the product or the, the product, the lunch and take them home. Yeah. The way the government rules were prior to this non-congregate feeding was that you could only get one meal in a lunchroom at a time. Well, that doesn't work with parents. So they're going to drive to the school like for breakfast and then go drive to the school for lunch yeah. and do yeah. it five days a week. So they allowed uh, schools across America to put together five days worth of meals, breakfast and lunch, and in some cases, dinner as well. And the parents could come once a week, go pick it up, take it home. And then they could microwave it or oven cook it or things of that nature. I have a portion pack facility where I make bowls of things instead of bags because though bags sound like a great idea, little bags for kids. Think of a little bag with kids and you what do you need scissors to open it? That's you got a you got a third grader. So we ended up putting stuff in portion bowls. And they could take it home, microwave it. They'd pull the top on it, microwave it, and they had a delicious 
lunch and we made all sorts of different items into that as well. Yeah, um, and the great so, thing is that you are getting the product, you know, some of those people receiving that were the indeed the families with kids who normally would have been on maybe free lunch program or reduced lunch program at the schools that you supply and they really were in need and especially if their parents were out of work or even some that weren't normally in need but their parents found themselves out of work which you're talking about that uh, echelon of people as well that have had stable jobs the whole time and were able to provide for their families all of a sudden found themselves in a whole different situation and we're trying to respond to that. So kudos to you and the group of companies to be able to, you know, work all together and try to figure out how to get things moving. But you had to make some changes to your products too, because you couldn't oh, yeah. get all that you needed on the Correct. front end of supply the supply chain. chain. Correct. So. We had a lot of, a lot of, adjustments to ingredients. Um, Now, what I mean, tomatoes, right? Tomato paste. Tomato paste, uh, it's now in its second year of decline as far Mm -hmm. as production availability. And a lot of that has to do with most people know, or maybe they don't know, 90% of all of your tomato products, specifically tomato paste, it's grown in California. And so when there are water restrictions in California, that directly affects the tomato crop. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get tomatoes, they don't grow as big. Tomatoes don't grow as big, don't make as much diced and shred and, uh, right. and filleted and paste and everything. So, you know, you're looking right now still, I always tell everybody I see, I go, you might want to go buy tomato paste. It keeps for a while. <laughs> if you use it a lot, put it in your pantry because whatever you're paying for it today in, in six months, you're going to be paying even more for it. Tomato Thanks paste. For that tip, Brian. All of our listeners are going to be ahead of the curve. Tomato paste. <laughs> yeah, I'm t- it, tomato paste doubled in price in a matter of like hours. The other thing is you have issues in Ukraine. One of the largest producers of wheat in the world is coming is, is coming out of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, well, all of a sudden, pasta prices went through the went through the roof. Uh, HPAI. As far as poultry is concerned, chicken uh, has affected the egg production. And what is in most pasta, well, what's in almost all pasta, wheat and egg whites. You know, it's a double whammy when it comes to anything related to pasta. Um, A lot of us in industry have been chasing cost input costs that were just the most ridiculous input costs we'd ever seen in our lives. I mean, my company, I think in the month of April, we ran millions and millions and millions of pounds of products, but due to cost inputs, we didn't make a dime. I mean, we did we lost wow. money um, because the cost of the material coming the in is so much more expensive. But again, that's the reason when a consumer sees cost corrections occurring at the grocery store level, you know, it, it's really not that your industry people are trying to take advantage of the situation. It's that pretty much the cost of I can't the cost of anything and everything. I always tell you, everything costs more. Even if you're even if you're getting free water from your municipal water service coming through from your city, your water bill has gone up. There's nothing. There's literally nothing. Corrugate, plastic, anything. Uh, it, it went up at once. So uh, slowly but surely, the supply chain has started to. The word is not the pricing is not. I would say come down. The supply chain has started to sort of steady stabilize a little bit yeah it's expensive it's just not radically expensive that you know you never know the next time you're going to place an order or issue po's 
that it's going to be, oh, yeah, that's that that's 40 percent more than it was last week. And we process we yeah, and we contract. I mean, we contract for our pasta more than a year in advance. Oh, wow. We contract for all of our tomato products before they even go in the ground. Oh, wow. Uh, right. So, I mean, you know, how we sorry. We contract for our cattle, chickens, and pork. They're not even they're not even here yet. <laughs> You've already contracted for them. You've the supply got... <laughs> chain, the supply chain. Actually, I would tell this to some of the school people. Uh, the supply chain got so tight on beef, right? That a box of if you if I sold a school a box of hamburgers, right? The beef in that box of hamburgers was eating grass six weeks ago. Okay, so. I mean, it's just amazing how short our supply chains, most people, most people yeah. don't know. The no. supply chains are very, very long. And even if it's a domestic product, there's probably something that had to arrive on a gigantic container ship from somewhere oh, else man. in the world, uh, deep water transport on those gigantic container ships, mm-hmm. which, oh, by the way, we're not getting unloaded fast enough. Uh, and that's the reason you're going to see, you know, you'll see huge sales on Christmas trees coming up later on this uh, couple of months because all of the stuff to the retailers and all of the suppliers, all of it arrived two to three to four months after it was supposed okay. to get here. Okay. That's the reason Target, that's the reason Target is selling things, at re- blowing it out because they're out of warehouse space. Wow. I mean, it's, well, you go from nothing to nothing, feast to famine. Or famine to feast, I guess. Uh, yes, whatever that is. But you get, is. JTM has navigated that and it seems like obviously you're the expert in that area. You're on top of it. That is your job. You're paying attention yeah. to all that. And as a result, I mean, you've been rewarded. You you are growing by leaps and bounds, trying to keep up with yourself, it sounds like. Correct. Correct. <laughs> yeah, we're just starting our next starting our next expansion. Um, actually, not starting. I've been here, like I said, I've been here 34 years. We have been building ever since I got here. And we're currently planning our next two production lines. Uh, but we're building all the infrastructure that we need around those two production lines. And then next year, we'll start building the two new production lines, which will give me another couple of hundred million pounds of additional capacity a year. Um, because the one thing that's not going to go away is there's not going to be an abundance of labor um, anytime in the future, um, yeah. you know, because, you know, boomers, baby, bo- and it's all it's all has to do with the generational stuff. Boomers had lots of kids. Millennials had some kids. Now, I mean, it's just the population numbers. There's just less people. So um, you have to automate. Or you have to do kind of what we do, whereas it might be somebody in their restaurant chain made their own chili and they've made it for years. What, what What's happening now in the industry is those same national chains are coming to companies like ours or we're going to them. And they're saying, hey, this is our signature chili. This is our signature whatever. We've been making it for years. I do not have the labor in the back of the house to make this. So I want you to make this exact product right. that my customer will never know I didn't make it. Uh, and I want you to make it because that frees up the most important employee is an employee that's up front, an employee that's with the customer. Yeah. The customers that are not are the, the employees 
If you can free employees up when you have a limited amount of employees to spend more time with the customers, you get better customer service. That way you get happier customers who continue when we originally said a while ago, it's all about getting repeat business, getting that customer to come back. And, and, and that's where the, that's where it is today. And again, we always tell everybody, even though I'm a manufacturer, I literally am doing it the same way they did it in the back of the house. Mm -hmm. I'm just doing it in a lot bigger economies of scale. Exactly. Um, you can you know, take advantage of that. If if there's a chain of restaurants, for example, you can mm-hmm. much more economically make that, let's use chili for mm-hmm. example, yeah. and, yeah. and then disperse that. And they are, are able to help with their labor situation, like you mm-hmm. said. I mean, so it's a positive all the way around. You're yeah. you're building the capacity and have the capacity and the technology to do that. Mm-hmm. A little bit the same recipe, but more yeah. efficiently, possibly instead of every individual thing, you know, getting the ingredients right. and prepping them and and all of that. So, and, I mean, JTM has. Yeah. Sorry? No, I was going to say if the interesting thing is 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 tr- as much trouble as we have with supply chain, it's nothing compared to what my customers have right. with supply chain because they're all buying weekly, monthly, quarterly. Um, for things, by the time they go to buy certain things, myself, I mean, just let's take tomatoes, right? Yeah. Myself, Kraft Heinz, Campbell's, yeah. we've all bought it already. Yeah. So, so whatever the smaller left, companies don't have as much leverage for sure. Correct. Yeah. yeah. In a limited, yeah. limited supply world, he who he, we always say the PO rules the day. So whoever gives them those POs far enough out are the ones that are going to get supplied. That's right. So, you know, right. it's just, and it's not changing for a, for a while. Well, Brian, thank you for sharing your wealth and your wisdom, wealth of knowledge and your wisdom with us about, I mean, so many facets of the food industry that you're dealing with. Before we go today, is there anything else you would like to share with our audience? No, just again, I always tell everybody, if, if specifically as far as school lunch is concerned, um, if you as a parent uh, are thinking about school lunch, how you remember it, right? Back when you were in school, I'll say back in 1984 when I graduated from high school, um, school lunch is a thousand percent different. They all have salad bars, scatter plans, deli plans. You walk into a school today and many times you're going to think you've walked into a food court uh, or something. Kids have so many more options, even though some of the options have been scaled down due to the fact of labor and other things. It's, I mean, compared to what, compared to what, what I used to get it, it, today, it's unbelievable. So I always sorry before you bang on the school lunch world, go visit your kid and eat lunch with them uh, yeah. and see exactly what they are getting. And you're going to be shocked because the average school lunch in America is probably three, $2.75 to three bucks, right? I don't think you can go through the McDonald's drive-through for $2.75 and get a meal. So it's the best value out there. It really yeah. is. So, yeah. uh, and I'm just glad to be a part of it. I'm a glad, I'm glad to be a part of the the people that are trying to make it as as fabulous as a day for a kid as possible. Because the last thing, remember, there's 60% of all the kids in America are free and reduced in the school lunch program. And there is a huge percentage of kids. The only real meal they get in a day is what they get at school. It wow. is amazing. 
But when you've been in this long enough and you see it, it is, it's, it's incredible. It is incredible. So, um, you know, it's a, and, and the people that work in school lunch, again, we always say superheroes, but again, they yes. could go work somewhere else. A lot of them are working for the heart, you know, because, um, because many times they're not working for the gigantic paycheck they're going, yes. they're, they're going to get, you know what I mean? Uh, but they, they I love do. kids. They want to serve kids. And it's, it, it's more of, it's not just a job. It's a calling for many of these people and, yeah. and God love them all for doing all that. So, well, and Brian, thanks for you and JTM providing great products for them to serve to the kids that the kids like. So that's, that's really helpful. We really appreciate you being on the podcast today. Not a problem. Thank you very much. And again, I always tell everybody, um, I really don't work because I love what I do. And when you love what you do, it's not really work. So, uh, and don't we all strive for that, Brian? That's fantastic. Uh, I also want to thank our sponsor, Farm to Plate, which is a software company enabling better food supply chain management. If you want to know more, you can check them out at farmtoplate.io. Thank you, Pam. You guys have a great day. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcasts. Future Foodcasts is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry. 